Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. While we're moving in a positive direction on the domestic economy in China, U.S.-China relations are unfortunately right now moving in the other direction in a negative way. These are misperceptions leading to apprehensions about where China sees its role in the world. I think you can draw some sharp contrasts between the way China looks at its role in the world and the way Russia today looks at its role in the world. Despite China's frequent appearances in global headlines over the last few years, there are a lot of misperceptions and outdated assumptions about how they operate both internally and as a player in the global economy. China has gotten wealthy and stable by participating in the global infrastructure that the U.S. and Britain created after World War II. I don't think the Chinese government wants to blow up that system or replace it. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. For many years, and especially during the pandemic, China has captured the attention of investors who, from the outside looking in, see one of the world's fastest growing economies. China's rapid urbanization and rise to economic prominence is super impressive. But the country's political structure, trade wars, and regulatory differences must be understood before putting money to work in China. Here to give us an insider's perspective is Andy Rothman, an investment strategist at Matthews Asia, the largest dedicated, active, U.S.-based investor in China, and they also cover broader Asia. Before heading to Matthews, Andy spent more than 20 years living and working in China, first as a student, then as an American diplomat, eventually running the macroeconomics office of the American Embassy and assisting in China's WTO talks. At Matthews, Andy is primarily responsible for developing research to focus on China's economic and political developments. The San Francisco-based firm was started about 30 years ago and has always held support for individual investors as well as institutions. I sat down with Andy to discuss the major shifts happening in China's economy, both pre- and post-pandemic, the changing role of private companies in China, and Andy's take on the policies affecting Chinese companies hoping to list in the United States. Let's enter the arena with Andy Rothman. I think that one of the misperceptions that a lot of people have about China is that its economy hasn't changed very much in a long time, and, and I want to try and dispel that, that myth. So, for example, when I first started working in China in the early 1980s, 
there were no private companies. Everybody worked for the state, and the state really controlled almost every aspect of Chinese citizens' lives. They told them where to live, where to go to school, what to study. When they left school, they assigned them a job with a state institution, which then gave them housing as part of the package. It was really hard to, to go overseas. As I said, you couldn't set up your own business. You even had to get the Communist Party's approval to marry a particular person. Contrast that to today, where almost 90% of urban employment in China is with small, privately run entrepreneurial companies. Back when I started working there, the government set almost all prices for goods. Now, almost all prices are, are set by the market. And in addition to these economic changes, that's brought a huge change in personal freedom. There's obviously no political freedom in China, but the, there's been an enormous expansion in personal freedom over that time because that was necessary to create a market-based economy. It's interesting because I was reading in your research that net exports in 21 accounted for the largest share of China's GDP growth. And within that, private companies accounted for 49% of that. Even versus just the last five years, I would assume that that 49% number is pretty huge, even relative to five or 10 years ago. Yeah, that's a good example of the change in the role of private companies in China. If you go back two decades ago, so roughly the time uh, when I was still working in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and China was about to join the WTO. At that point, private companies were just getting going and they accounted only for 7% of China's trade or imports and exports combined, 7%. That went up to 28% 10 years ago and it's now 49%, almost half. So it's a reflection of how much the government has allowed the private sector to basically take over and drive the economy. But I want to go back to, you know, talk a little bit more about trade because, you know, back in the old days, a couple of decades ago, uh, exports were a really big part of the Chinese economy. That was kind of the kickstart for moving away from the command and control economy. But today it's actually a pretty small part. If you look at net exports, that's the uh, economists speak for the value of a country's exports minus their imports. It was much bigger uh, last year because of COVID, which led to huge demand in places like the U.S. and Canada for goods from China. But it wasn't the biggest part of growth. Uh, the biggest part of GDP growth last year was still consumption. If you go back before COVID, net exports on average contributed zero to China's GDP growth. So my point here with all these numbers is that China is no longer primarily an export-led economy. China is no longer primarily a cheap manufacturing economy. It's primarily an economy that's driven by private individuals buying goods and services, just like our economies. It's not fully consumption-based yet like ours, but it's moving steadily in that direction. And that's also really good for all the stuff that we're shipping to China and that their consumers want to buy from us. One of the things that we hear constantly in the media and the financial press is about supply chain constraints and obviously what you said about an export economy. China's hugely important for that, for the supply chain around the world. How do you see that panning out, knowing that there seems to have been a lot of constriction and, and problems in the supply chain post-COVID? How does that play out over the next 9 to 12 months? There's actually been very few hiccups in the supply chain on the China side. In fact, last year, China's share of global exports hit an all-time high. And so while there have been a lot of media reports focused on how 
one of the larger ports in China, Ningbo, got shut down for a couple of days. It was only a couple of days. There have been a couple of other cities where factories have had to close for a few days. But by and large, China's end of the global supply chain has actually held up really well during COVID. Yeah, and I would imagine that the rest of the world, a lot of the manufacturing shut down. So maybe the net export gains are temporary as kind of things come back around the world. Would that be accurate? Yes, that's my view. I think that as COVID recedes, hopefully, in the coming quarters, uh, manufacturing around the world will pick up steam again. And then you'll see the share of Chinese exports around the world going back down to where it was before COVID and the contribution to exports in the Chinese economy going back down to where it was before. So it's still a significant source of jobs, especially for less well-educated workers, but it's not the biggest driver of the economy. China's actually going through a similar transition now that we've been going through since the late 1950s, which is that as we get richer, a larger share of our spending as consumers goes to services rather than to goods. And therefore, our workforce has been shifting since the late 1950s from manufacturing to services. And China, in the last few years, has just started going through that shift too. And you know, Germany's gone through it, Japan's gone through it. It's a natural evolution as consumption shifts from goods to services, employment shifts from making goods to providing services. Where does manufacturing go? Obviously, there'll still be a lot of uh, goods uh, manufactured in China, but will that kind of broadly spread out over the Asia region, or where, where does that go? Yeah, two things are happening. The employment impact of manufacturing will shift, just like it has in the United States. So, for example, as I said, manufacturing employment as a share of total employment in the United States has been falling since the late 1950s, but manufacturing output in the United States has increased really rapidly, especially in the last couple of decades, through productivity gains largely driven by technology. And China's gonna go through the same thing. So it's gonna still make a lot of stuff, but fewer people will be employed there. And like here, the services part of the economy will become bigger and the driver of jobs. The other trend, which is also already underway, is that as China is getting richer and focused more on services, and as labor costs are going up as the population is getting better educated and wealthier. The cheap stuff has been moving offshore to Vietnam and, and Bangladesh, just like many years ago, it moved from, say, Japan to China. And that's kind of a, a, a good process because it gives those other countries a chance to jumpstart their economies as well. The last 18 months, even an amateur observer of Chinese economics will have heard the headlines about technology companies coming under greater government control and the weakened state of the residential property market. I asked Andy for his expert opinion on these commonly cited issues and what he's observed as an easing cycle in the Chinese market. So the way I look back on last year is that it was a year when the Chinese government was focused on reducing risks rather than focused on economic growth. They wanted to reduce a number of risks. One of them was in the property sector, which is highly fragmented. Thousands of developers, most of whom only had one or two projects, a lot of very poorly run and risky developers. And they wanted to try and promote consolidation in that industry by squeezing out the 
the worst players. And so in May of last year, the Central Bank of China went to commercial banks and said, stop issuing mortgages for a while. Let's see what happens. You know, they overdid it and they went too far as they often do with these things. And the property market froze in the second half of the year. And there's a bunch of developers, maybe 10 to 20, that are unable to pay their debt right now because nobody's buying new flats from them. But the government is also stepping in to encourage other developers to take over those projects. They are trying to shake this out. And I think by the summer, we'll go back to a stable, healthy market. And I don't see it as a ticking time bomb. Important differences in the property market is cash. You remember we had a housing crisis about 10 years ago. For me, the one statistic that illustrates why we had a housing crisis was that in 2006, right before the crisis, the median down payment for a new home in America, the median was 2% of the purchase price. You know, prices go down a little bit and a lot of people are underwater. We also had amazingly reckless mortgage securitization. And in China, by regulation, minimum cash down payments, 20%. Every bank I've spoken to over the years, it's 25% cash down. Now on the tech side, it was a similar kind of thing. It was about cracking down on risk, but the tech risks were different. I think overall last year, the Chinese government was saying, we're worried about the same thing that people in the US are worried about. We're worried about income inequality. We're worried about uh, inequality of wealth, unequal access to healthcare and education. And we're also concerned that some of the largest tech players are using anti-competitive practices to prevent smaller firms from catching up to them. These are the kinds of things that we've been talking about here in the U.S. for a long time, right? We keep talking yeah, about totally. Amazon and Facebook and Google, and but we don't do anything about it. In yep. China, in part because it's a one-party authoritarian regime, it's easier for them to make a decision and act on it. And they did that. And like I said, they often overdo things when they start out. So the crackdown on tech was not about reducing the role of private companies in China. The Chinese government, I believe, loves their equivalent companies like Alibaba and Tencent. They're they're great companies. They drive a lot of employment, but they are concerned about those issues that I was talking about, those social issues. And I think they watched how politicized discussions about dealing with those issues have become in the United States in the last few years. And I think they decided that they should act now before it got overly politicized, before the problems got too big. So I think what they're doing is trying to deal with these social and economic concerns, just the same concerns that we have, in a more heavy-handed way that we might not be supportive of. But I think their objectives are reasonable. And if they're halfway successful at trying to deal with these issues, then I think over the longer term, the environment for the Chinese economy and for investors like us is actually going to be better. And this year, having gone through that crackdown, which went too far last year, I think the focus this year is going to be on steadier implementation of the rules that are already out there. For example, the big food delivery company knows it has to pay its gig workers more. That's what the government wants. They want them to contribute more to their social security payments. They want to give them uh, better access to healthcare. They want to reduce pressure on how many deliveries they make. So accidents go down. Sound familiar, right? So as an investor, we can also think about the impact that this has on the business model and on the margins, and then look for our clients 
and say, is this company valued reasonably and is it a good investment now? It's amazing to do all that kind of in a year like 2020 when everything was on complete lockdown. But with that kind of reset happening throughout 2020, maybe mostly towards the end, you talk about an easing cycle now. Is that when you say easing cycle, do you mean it's maybe a little more hands-off government-wise or more policy easing? Well, I wouldn't say hands-off because the Chinese government still believes in more government intervention than we're comfortable with here. It's more like maybe a Northern European socialist perspective on the government. They want the economy to be driven primarily by private companies. They want the market to set most prices, but they also want to intervene more when they feel that there are structural imbalances like the income inequality issues. In terms of easing, it's going to be along three lines, and that's monetary, fiscal, and regulatory policy. And on the monetary and fiscal side, it's going to be fascinating in China this year because they're easing already and will be easing more at a time when the U.S. and Europe are tightening. So China's already started cutting rates while we're talking about raising rates. They talked about how they went too far last year in reducing risks in the financial system and over-tightened on monetary policy, on credit availability, and that's already starting to ease and will ease further. On the fiscal side, they really kind of shut down local governments building public infrastructure, and now they're going to allow that to go back to a reasonable pace again. And on yep. the regulatory side, the things that we talked about a moment ago, about on, particularly on the tech companies. So this should be a really strong year for the Chinese economy for that reason, in contrast to what's going to be maybe more headwinds for us. To stay on that theme, if investor sentiment in China um, improves and the economy continues its momentum, do you think Chinese growth companies, when they go to access capital, do you think they'll list in the U.S.? Do you think they'll list primarily locally in China? I think that this easing process we've been talking about is going to be very positive for investor sentiment in China. And that's important because the Chinese stock market is where most Chinese companies are listed, and it's driven primarily, overwhelmingly, by Chinese domestic investors. Foreigners play a very small role in that market, although we're there, and obviously Matthews Asia invests there on behalf of our clients. But I think that when you talk to Chinese companies that are getting going, they definitely still want to list in the United States. This is seen as the best market for a number of reasons, including that a lot of these companies have foreign private equity investors who are looking for an exit in a market outside of China where the currency is convertible. And we're also seen as the most liquid and, and, and best market in the world. But of course, there's another side to this, which is the regulatory side. There's talk uh, in Washington of limiting the ability of Chinese companies to list in the United States and possibly even kicking out the 250 or so Chinese companies that are listed in New York right now on both markets because of a disagreement about audit practices between the U.S. government and the Chinese government. We don't know how that's going to play out yet. But in the end, if Chinese companies are not able to list here, it's, I think, bad for our markets. I mean, if we want to continue to be the predominant capital markets in the world, we need to have the second largest economy in the world, have their companies be able to list here. Uh, I think it's better for American investors if companies are listed here. But in the end, if Chinese companies are not able to list here, 
will follow the best Chinese companies into other markets, which include Shanghai and Shenzhen and now Beijing as well. Personally, I think that would benefit China if there could be a meeting in the minds and coming to an agreement on some standards, because that'll give more liquidity to their economy and their companies. And I think it would be great for the U.S. Yeah, the Chinese regulator, their equivalent of the SEC, has said that they want to find a way to resolve this issue. So we talked about the easing cycle, and uh, I thought your piece that described two weather patterns driving China's investment environment was really fascinating. Before I opened it, I thought it was going to be a weather report because I don't know what I'm talking about as it relates to China. But the easing cycle was one weather pattern. The second pattern is kind of the rhetoric and actions coming out of Washington. And the listing discussion is a great segue to that because if it was non-politicians talking to solve a problem, they probably could do it pretty easily. But there's certainly rhetoric and other stuff coming out of D.C. How is that kind of working against that easing cycle and what's happening in China right now? The piece that, that you referred to is one of the series that I write about uh, the Chinese economy and politics and U.S.-China relations under the title Synology. And those are all available to everybody on the Matthews Asia website uh, on the Synology page. They're absolutely fantastic. And anybody can understand it because I did. So that's good. <laughs> Thanks. I think the pattern that, that I was talking about is that while we're moving in a positive direction on the domestic economy in China, U.S.-China relations are unfortunately right now moving in the other direction in a, in a negative way. And I feel like these misperceptions are leading to apprehensions about where China sees its role in the world. Uh, so, for example, I think you can draw some sharp contrasts between the way China looks at its role in the world and the way Russia today looks at its role in the world. China has gotten wealthy and stable by participating in the global infrastructure that the U.S. and Britain created after World War II. I don't think the Chinese government wants to blow up that system or replace it. Similarly, I do not think that the Chinese government wants to threaten liberal Western democracy around the world. I think they just want to create space for their own system at home. I don't think they're trying to export that system to other countries, mostly because they know it wouldn't work. I think that we have space to go back and look at the last couple of decades where engagement between the United States and China, I think, has provided incentives for the Chinese government to change its behavior for the better, both abroad and at home. So they haven't started a war since 1979. They've been fairly responsible players in global institutions like the UN and the IMF. And as I was talking about at the beginning of the discussion, life for most Chinese people has gotten dramatically better over the last few decades, both in terms of standard of living and also in terms of personal freedom. So for me, the next question is how to further incentivize the Chinese government to change its behavior a little bit more so it's more aligned with global norms, both abroad and at home. So I really hope that the two governments can re-engage and talk about the incentives of moving in the right direction. I'm just thinking about what you just said. It just seems like the rhetoric is so elevated and I think, as you rightly point out, one of the biggest risks is that the population of China starts to have a very unfavorable view of 
of America and the citizens of America, which would really be a shame because everybody certainly is looking out for their own country and government. But at the end of the day, there seems to be room uh, for coexistence around the world. I agree. And, and my experience of living in China for more than 20 years and then continuing to travel back regularly, pre-COVID, of course, is that you know, the vast majority of Chinese people and the majority of people that I've worked with over the years in the Chinese government and the Communist Party admire a lot about the U.S. and other democracies. It's not to say that they want to turn China into a liberal Western democracy, but I think they do want to and have already adopted many of the positive elements of our system. And I'd hate to see that positive sentiment wasted, and it'll be hard to recover. I'm very happy that we've seen one positive step in this direction, both for American people and Chinese people in in the last couple of weeks, which is that the Biden administration's uh, Justice Department had to change significantly what the previous administration created called the China Initiative, which I think was a kind of a racially profiled way of trying to reduce uh, espionage in the United States that turned out to be highly discriminatory against Americans of Asian descent. And the Biden administration is now changing that. So that's very positive. I guess in closing, Andy, uh, and this is so uh, topical, kind of the Ukraine-Russia situation in the news over here, there always seems to be stories about how China and Russia have really uh, improved their relationship. What's your take on the situation in the Ukraine and, and Russia as it relates to China? How do you think that affects the next six to 12 months? One of my friends who's an expert on Russia-China political relations describes this as an axis of convenience, and I think that's a good way to put it. I don't think there's a lot of trust. It's not an alliance. And I think that the fact that Europe and the U.S. increasingly have been giving less space to China has encouraged them to cozy up a little bit more to Russia just because they're feeling a little bit boxed in. But... I also think the Chinese government made quite a big mistake in the way that they initially framed their response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I think they were caught by surprise that the invasion actually took place. But what's been interesting is in the last few days, every day the Chinese government's language about what's happening in Ukraine has been slowly inching a little bit further away from Putin. Uh, I think they realize they've made a mistake and they're now looking for a face-saving way of backing away from that mistake, but also without overly antagonizing Putin, because we have to remember that they share, that China shares a very long border with Russia and they don't want to go back to a period in time several decades ago when that was a really troubled border. My expectation is that we are not going to see China play an active role in helping Putin evade the impact of sanctions that are put in place by Europe and the United States. Do you think they're surprised by the international response, you know, sanctions, et cetera? Do you think they were surprised by the world's reaction to the invasion? Oh, I imagine so. We've never seen this before. I'm sure it's taken Putin by surprise as well. We may not always agree with China's policy decisions, but once you let go of some of the misperceptions, the distance between us and them 
gets a lot closer, and the economic incentives that could come from working with China rather than against China become more apparent. The road to broader international understanding may be a long one, but individuals looking to explore investment opportunities in China don't need to wait. The market is really strong and on track to get even stronger, making it a relatively smart and potentially very rewarding time to invest. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Andy again for joining us on the show today. I know I've learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm looking forward to checking in with Andy down the road. I think it's really cool that Matthews gives investment advice not only to institutions, but individuals, and those individuals are getting a chance to benefit from this kind of top-notch research. I'm your host, Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.